Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. Thanks so much for checking us out. At Echo, we are all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, and today we'll be studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historic account of how the apostles received power from Jesus and then carried the truth of the gospel to the entire world. In its pages, Luke details God's brilliant and timeless strategy for re-establishing his kingdom in the world. It's quite simple. Jesus will supply power to his witnesses for telling people everywhere about him. Here's Pastor Phil Nauer. Good morning, Echo. Ooh. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> My name is James Yike, and I uh, have the honor and the privilege to serve here at Echo as the discipleship pastor. Today, we are going to read from the Word of God in uh, Acts chapter 5. And if you've looked ahead, or you know Acts chapter 5, or you recognize the names Ananias and Sapphira, yeah, yeah, some of you know it is coming. Uh, Very interesting portion of Scripture, very uncomfortable. Um, So uncomfortable, in fact, that people over the centuries have tried to explain away this part in the Bible. Some people say that Luke never actually wrote this. Some people say that this is Luke's attempt at a parable. Um, Wouldn't have been my first choice for a parable, but there you go. Uh, Really, though, none none of the attempts that we've ever made to disqualify this part of the Bible really hold any water, which leads us to the really uncomfortable historical fact that God does some stuff here in Acts chapter 5, and we sort of have to deal with it. We can't just explain it away. So that's what we're going to get into today. So with that really rosy and upbeat introduction, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and invite our scripture reader today. Would you join me in welcoming Mr. Stuart Johnson? Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Stuart Johnson. I serve in the kids ministry at the check-in desk. My wife and I serve there together. We chose kids ministry because we, that was one of the boxes we checked off when we were looking for our church home. Uh, so serving there seemed only obvious because we want everyone else who's looking for that in their search for a church home to be able to check that box as well. Um, gave my life to Jesus over 25 years ago. It was a great decision in my life. And I still remember everything about that day and the joy it felt in my heart. I still have that today. So on to the reading. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought back part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. The Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in and not knowing what had happened, asked Peter, what's this the price you you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, 
How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young man who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the church and everyone who heard what had happened. It's a great note to end on. Great fear gripped the church. Yay. All right, so it's a little uncomfortable, right? We just read that God straight up just offed two people. And and it wasn't the kind of people that you would think, wow, they really deserved that, you know? I'm sure we can all think of somebody who really deserves, you know, what God gives them. But these are two members of the church. These are people who are saved by the blood of Christ. And from what we know about the early church, then we can assume they were probably baptized and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and they're bringing a really sizable donation to the church that's going to be redistributed to help people living with deficit. People like widows and orphans who were booted unceremoniously from the Jewish welfare system as soon as they accepted Christ as Lord. These are people who, through no fault of their own, are in a really rough situation. All of this money could really go to help all those people. And those are the two people that God drops. And that's super uncomfortable. So really the first thing that we think when we look at this, it's your big question for today. The first thing we ask, we go, why? It's your big question. Why? Why, God? What, what could have been in your mind that led you to respond in this specific way? And it bothers us because we think that sometimes, we look at something like this in our hyper-love-focused culture and we say, I don't think that's in God's character, Right? And we struggle with that. When you know what we know about God, that he's consistent yesterday, today, and forever, and that he'll never deny himself. In other words, every action he does is inconsistent with his character. It's constant. That means that actually this is in God's character, which also keeps us uncomfortable. And to be completely honest with you, one, it's okay that we're a little uncomfortable with God sometimes because we're finite minds trying to comprehend an infinite mind, and usually we're a little uncomfortable with things that we don't fully understand. It doesn't mean that you have to trust God any less if you're a little uncomfortable with some of the stuff that he does. You can still trust him, and you can still trust his goodness. You can still trust his justice, his mercy, and his grace, even if you don't fully comprehend everything that God does, okay? So that is fine. But it's still uncomfortable, so let's talk about it. That first question is why, God, why did you do this? And we're going to follow the clues today. There's a ton of notes in your bulletin, so click those pens, get them ready, because we are going to just fly through this stuff. There's a bunch of context clues that will help us to at least get a better understanding of what's going on here so that we can figure out at least maybe a little bit better. I'm not going to say I'm, you're going to leave here with a conclusive answer. Spoiler alert, I don't have one for you. I don't have a conclusive answer for the why God did this, but to maybe help us understand a little bit more about God and about the church and the process, we're going to look through some of these context clues. The first question that you have to ask yourself when we look at something like this in the Bible is, is this episode normal? Is this something that happens all the time? Whenever we sin, does God immediately enact judgment? So let me ask you, Echo Community Church, the last time that you sinned, did God kill you right away? 
even if you answered yes to that question, you're still alive to answer yes to that question. So, yeah, that's, that's a little, it's more normal for us to experience God's grace in that respect, right? Okay. Um, in the New Testament, when you read through the rest of the book of Acts and you look at the epistles and things like that, is this something that you see happening all the time? No. God's not just like smote, smote, smote. This is a very unique episode. And that's the first context clue here. That this episode is unique in the New Testament. It's not normal. Therefore, that means that if it's a unique episode, perhaps it required a unique response. Does that follow? Cool. All right. Number two. And actually, don't put this up on the screen yet. I'm going to talk through it first. We, we need to look at the sin issue here to figure out what's going on. So Ananias and Sapphira, much like many other people at this time in the church who live with excess, they have extra property, they have extra houses. You go back to Acts chapter 4, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, and you find out that many of these people who have a lot are selling the extra possessions they have, and they're taking that money, giving it to the apostles to be redistributed to people who don't have the means to provide for themselves. It wasn't a mandate. It was never a command. Peter never said, you guys have to do this. What it was was a radical generosity that was birthed out of, a, uh, of really understanding and being transformed by the generosity of Christ and through his, his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection. And so these people are treating their possessions and their money in a totally different way than they did before. And they're selling this off, giving the money to the apostles. The apostles are giving it to those in need. So Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. They got some property, they sell it off, and they're going to take the money and they're going to give it to the apostles. But it's not, I wouldn't want to say it's 100% out of the generous spirit of their heart because you see in verse 2 that they start to conspire. With Sapphira's consent, Ananias decided, so they decided together, we're going to give them this much money. Let's say, let's say they sold their property for $100,000. It's not in the text, but it's a good round number. So let's say, yeah, they got $100,000, and they decided, hey, we're going to give $50,000 to the church. But here's where the conspiracy comes in. But we're going to lie about that amount and say that that's all we got from the sale of the house. There's really no reason. I mean, they're fudging the numbers. It's not like the church is going to get any more or any less money, right? It's still $50,000. But just, they conspire to lie about it. So there's some ulterior motive, something they want to get, something they want to gain from this lie. They think that they're going to get something extra out of it. The church is going to benefit. Maybe our reputation will go up a little bit or something like that. It's a win-win. At least that's what they think. Ananias brings money to Peter. He lies about it. Peter somehow knows. We don't really know how he knows. Text doesn't say. Maybe God told him. Maybe the realtor that did the sale went to the church. We don't know. Um, but uh, we know that Peter somehow knew, and he calls Ananias out on it, and Ananias drops. Same thing happens later. Sapphira comes in, not knowing that her husband is dead and buried, by the way. She just walks in. Peter gives her the chance. He asks her a question and gives her the chance to actually come clean about it. But she sticks to the lie because she and Ananias conspired about it earlier. We're going to stick to our story. She sticks to it, and then she drops. So what's the sin issue here? Sometimes we look at this, we think it's greed. Because verse 3 says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. And we focus on that, and we go, ah, he's greedy. He only gave $50,000 to the church when he could have given 100000 Like, we're in such a good place where we're all selling all of our possessions and taking 100% of that money and giving it to the church, right? We're not really in the place to judge 
the greed going on here, I don't think. Obviously, they weren't doing it completely out of the milk of human kindness, the generosity of the Spirit, but the issue then is not greed. Peter even says it. He's like, you didn't have to sell your house, and once you got the money, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. Could have brought all of it, could have brought part of it, could have brought two dollars, doesn't matter. The money here is not the issue. The issue is the fact that they lied. That's the second context clue. The sin issue wasn't greed, it was dishonesty. And you might say, well, Pastor James, you know, all sin being equal, does it really matter whether it was greed or dishonesty? In this moment, yes, absolutely. Because dishonesty does something to the church right here that has catastrophic consequences if this dishonesty is followed through, okay? And we're going to see that in a minute. So that's your second context clue. Number three, and I don't have too much time to get into this, so I'll just give a real quick summary. Satan's involved in this deception. Um, here's the short one-sentence statement on that. Ananias and Sapphira's sin, right, they conspired to lie beforehand. That sin gave Satan an opening, and he jumped in. They were not possessed. The text doesn't read that way. But they, through their own sin and sinful nature, and giving into that selfish desire, they had some, we'll call it, sin margin, they were obviously okay with spreading the gospel. Acts chapter 4 says all of the believers were united in that purpose. So they're united in that purpose too. But they had some little margin in their lives that they kind of pushed God out of where they just thought, hey, it's okay if we lie a little bit. It's okay if we fudge the numbers. And that little opening let Satan jump right in. Peter says in verse 3, How, or why have you let Satan fill your heart? So again, it's not that they were possessed, it's just that they gave Satan an opening to jump into this church that is exploding and try to discredit what the church is doing, and specifically to try and discredit the apostles. Because let's say, what would happen if one of the apostles, maybe let's say, I don't know, Peter, was somehow implicated in some kind of dishonest scheme in the church? If that information got out, what would that do to his credible witness to the resurrection of Christ. If he can be okay with a lie, as small as just fudging the numbers, didn't affect anything, but if he's okay with a lie that's that little, can you really trust him when he says something as big as, this guy was dead and now he's alive, oh and by the way, he's the son of God and he ascended to heaven? Can you trust him with something that big if he can't be faithful with something that little? So Satan kind of worms his way in here, and he wants to use this as a way to discredit the church. Here's the fourth note, and this kind of lends a little credence to what I was just talking about. The church is rapidly expanding, largely due to the credible witness of the apostles. Most of the people in the church at this point did not see the resurrected Christ. There's a small number of people who walked with Jesus while he was alive, who knew that he was dead or either watched him suffer and die, and then saw him with a different resurrected body after the fact. So he was dead, but now he's alive. And then he ascended to heaven before their eyes. And it's the apostles who experienced all of those things who are the credible witness to, the, to Christ's resurrection. And they're the ones going around and saying, hey, this is real. This is legit. Now, Acts chapter 4 also tells us that the rest of the church was preaching too. They were all going out and preaching but it all rests, all of their beliefs rest on the trustworthy account that the apostles had that Jesus actually suffered and died and that Jesus actually resurrected. 
if you take that away or you can discredit that statement, then our entire faith becomes suspect. You get that, right? I mean, that's what we stand on. We stand on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then he's just a dead guy. And there's no reason to sing to him because he can't hear us because he's dead, right? So Jesus had to have resurrected. And if the apostles or the church start losing that credible witness, it causes a whole lot of problems for the church at that point. And maybe we wouldn't even be here today. Does that all follow? Is that making sense so far? Okay. So here's a statement I put in your notes. There's nothing you have to fill in here just in the sake of time. I'll just read this to you. If we accept that the episode recorded in Acts 5, 1 through 11 is unique, and we accept that Satan is involved in trying to utilize the dishonesty of a believer to destroy the credibility of the apostles and hinder the spread of the gospel, should we not also accept that it is completely appropriate for God to do something about it? I think so. I mean, these are the people that Jesus died for. He died for this church. Of course he's going to do something. Then, of course, the question is, well, why didn't you do that? Why couldn't you have just brought some correction? Why couldn't you have, you know, moved your spirit on Peter and had him, you know, take them to the side? Why did you have to drop him right there? Short answer, I don't know. Um, and, and I don't need to know. I want to give you some thoughts here about what we learn from Acts 5, 1 through 11. Regarding God, why did you do specifically what you did here? Number one, we learn that God alone is judge, and God alone decides the time for judgment. And that's, that's that. We learned about this. We talked about this a lot in Revelation. We also talked about it a lot in the Minor Prophets. That God is a God, if he is a God that loves so passionately, he has to hate that which harms what he loves. And we all know we want justice and we want judgment for people who do wrong, right? Except when it's us, then we want grace. Just saying, it's true. But we do want the wicked to be punished. It's just that when it comes to God, because God knows more than we do, and because his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, sometimes when he brings judgment, it doesn't look like what we would want it to look like. 1 Timothy 5.24 gives us, I think, a little bit of context. This is Paul writing later, years after this event. And he says, he's writing to Timothy, and he, he's talking about sin, and he says, the sins of some people are, are obvious or conspicuous. It goes before them to the judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And I think that gives us a little bit of understanding here. Because, you know, on the eternal side, there is an ultimate judgment, Right? where we'll be judged according to our actions, those who have committed sin that has not been paid for experience eternal death and eternal judgment. And that's awful, and that should terrify everybody. And then people who are covered, who have their sin paid for by Jesus Christ, they get to enter into the inheritance that Christ has in heaven, in new earth and new bodies and all that good stuff. So there's an eternal judgment that's coming, but you know, God sometimes uses judgment here on earth, right? And it's often a way to call us towards or away from the path of judgment and onto the path of mercy. Sometimes God allows the sin of people on earth to be discovered and found out. And he does it not so that he can condemn them, but so he can draw them towards mercy. 
right? Have you ever seen, actually, I don't even need to talk about this. There's all sorts of things going on in the media that happened this week where things are coming out about people, no comment, um, that, you know, threaten to undermine credibility and all sorts of stuff, right? So in some cases, the sins of some people are discovered and then they're judged here on earth by, by people, by leaders, by governments, by the people that God sets in authority to carry out judgment on earth in an effort to bring them into, uh, to bring them to Christ and to bring them towards mercy. Does that make sense? And some people's sin, some people's sin is just discovered later. It's after, you know, they, they keep it hidden and they actually keep it, they take it to their graves with them, but God doesn't let it slide. So God is well within his rights to determine when the judgment happens. And even though Ananias and Sapphira, even though this specific sin of dishonesty here was covered by the blood of Jesus, right? Because his blood covers past, present, and future. Even though it was covered, God still is within his rights to enact an earthly judgment here in an attempt to draw other people towards mercy. Again, it's not a 100% conclusive answer. But again, I don't really think we need one. You see so much about the character of God here. So let's talk about the second thing. God is extraordinarily concerned with the purity of his church. I mean, somebody just lied. They tried to bring sin into the camp, and God dealt with it immediately. That should wake us all up to how comfortable God is with us living with sin. He is not comfortable with it at all. I used that phrase sin margin earlier, right? That, was, that actually came out of a conversation that I had with Pastor Phil when we were preparing for this message and I was kind of talking through with him some of the points that I was going to share with you this morning. He made this statement, um, and I'm going to add the word sin in there just for context so it makes a little more sense. He said, we live with more, or we often live with more sin margin in our lives than God is really comfortable with. I think that's completely true. It's spots in our life where where we once had handed over control to Jesus, we take a little of that control back, we may push him out a little bit to give ourselves some margin. You know what I mean by margin? It's like wiggle room, right? If you've got margin in your budget, it's a little financial wiggle room. You can do a little bit with that extra money. So we just kind of force Jesus out, make a little more margin, so we can sin the things that we're okay with. Or we justify it and we go, well, you know, Jesus already died for it, so I'm good, it's cool. But God is extraordinarily concerned with the purity of this church. And you see it right here because he just dropped two people for just for fudging the numbers. And I hope, so I hope that shows you how important purity is. But I also hope that that shows you how big God's grace is and how abundant his grace is. Because if he's well within his rights, to drop some earthly judgment on people right when they sin, that means that every time we sin, he's well within his rights to do that as well. Yet, he hasn't so far, (laughs) for me at least. And it's because he wants to draw me closer to himself. So I hope that also shows you and gives you a bigger appreciation for just how abundant his grace and his mercy is. And sometimes, you know what, while he might not drop you on the spot, he may allow you to experience some earthly judgment and consequences for the sin that you and I commit, but the reason he does that is to draw us closer towards mercy so we can be more and more like him. 
Here's the third thing I learned, and this is the last point in your notes. Peter's response to this situation is really important. And it shows us that his credible witness to the gospel was his highest priority, was number one, of even greater value than the large sum of money that was at stake. Peter has a choice to make, and we, lo- we lose this choice. We miss it a lot because we, we're focused on the, oh my gosh, God just killed Ananias and Sapphira thing. So it kind of overshadows this, but this is super critical. Peter has a choice to make when Ananias comes to him and says, here's all the money that I got from the sale of the house. Peter can, one, accept the money and endorse the lie, or two, he can confront the lie and potentially lose the donation, but maintain his credible witness. And you remember how important that credible witness is, not only to spreading the gospel back then, but to literally every single thing we believe. Because if we can prove conclusively that Peter was a liar and that he was dishonest, then can we really trust everything else he said? And Peter's action tells me that his credible witness was not for sale. It was his number one priority. And this, man, this situation is, I like to think that, that I would have acted just like Peter. But man, I would have been tempted not to, guaranteed. And probably so would you have. Because man, that money could do a lot of good, right? You could put that to work, take care of widows and orphans. You could take care of brothers and sisters who don't have what you have. I mean, that's social justice. That's important, Right? That is something God calls us to do. And you wonder if maybe Peter, the text doesn't say, so I don't want to say that he struggled with this, but I know if I was in his position, I would certainly struggle with the fact of there's so much earthly, temporary good that I could do with that money. But on the other side, it might cost me my integrity. If that ever gets out, it's going to destroy my credibility as a witness. Peter chooses the eternal over the temporal. As important as the temporal was, as much good as that money could have done, as many people as it could have helped, Peter realizes that this life on earth, when compared to the rest of eternity, is like the blink of an eye. And he prioritizes the outcome that has him maintain a credible witness so that he can continue to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and usher as many people into that eternity on God's side as possible. His credible witness was not for sale. He placed an enormous value on his credibility, and I wonder if we do the same. Here's a conclusion. We often live with more sin margin in our lives than God is comfortable with. It's true. So with that in mind, I'm going to call all of us Christians to examine our credible witness. Are my actions establishing or diminishing my credible witness to the gospel? Is what I'm doing harming my ability to preach the good news to people? Whether anybody else knows about it or not. Because you can never guarantee that it won't be found out. And if it is, it could potentially destroy your ability to witness and to tell people about Jesus. See, sometimes we, we, we ask the wrong question. We go, am I a witness? Boy, I wish I was more of a witness, or I wish I could witness. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, if you identify yourself with Christ, you are a witness, period. The question isn't, are you a witness? The question is, are you an effective witness, or are you a destructive witness? 
because it's not really effective or not effective because the opposite goes into destructive territory because you also implicate the rest of the church. Have you ever seen any, any leaders who get implicated in something and like a pastor endorsed them and all of a sudden that entire church is under scrutiny? Like you've seen this worked out before in the last 10 years of American history even. This is not, this is not uncommon. And when we sin and when we allow that sin margin into our lives, it brings an area where Satan, just like he did with Ananias and Sapphira, can kind of jump right in there, be like, sweet, I can use this to discredit James Yike. I can use this to discredit Echo Community Church. I can use this to discredit all the churches in Perry Hall, because what if they're all in league with each other? You see how big this can snowball so quickly from such a tiny little sin as just being like, it's cool. I know you're lying about the numbers, but hey, that money could do a lot of good, right? That's it. But that can snowball so quickly. So here's what I want you all to consider this week. The way that we act, the way that we talk, does that establish your credibility or does it diminish it? It's going to do one of those things. Is what you're posting on social media establishing or diminishing your credible witness to the resurrection of Christ? Or the movies you're watching, the TV you're watching, the games you're playing, are they establishing or diminishing your credible witness to the resurrection of Christ? Is the language you choose to use establishing or diminishing your credible witness? Is the way you act around people you don't go to church with establishing or diminishing your witness? Like when you, will people be surprised when they find out you're a Christian? If someday you're like, hey, I want to invite you to my church, and they go, you go to church? I couldn't tell. You know, you got a mouth like a sailor, right? I am serious. Like, will that establish or diminish your credibility? Is the way that you act around people who you do go to church with establishing or diminishing your credibility. The way you respond to stress or trauma, and maybe not just the initial response, but the way you keep responding to it. Seriously, every single thing, it can be a tool to establish your credibility, or it could do the exact opposite and destroy your credibility as a witness to the point where if you witness to somebody and you say, hey, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross in my place, and that he rose, is alive, and is in heaven, you can destroy that credibility to say that to the point where people won't even listen to what you have to say. So church, I know I didn't give you a conclusive answer on that first thing, but can we, can we trust in the goodness of God? Can we trust that he's a good judge? I think so. And I hope that the rest of this message has convinced you of the need to maintain purity in our lives and in our hearts, to get rid of that sin margin and to be mindful that all of our actions can be a tool that can establish our credibility for the gospel of Christ. Let me pray for you really quickly. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word, even the uncomfortable stuff. Thank you for having so much grace and mercy on us, even when we don't understand, and even when we get mad sometimes when we don't understand and when we're uncomfortable with what you do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of our actions and of the credibility of, your, of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I also pray for anybody who's here this morning, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you've never confessed your need of him and asked him for forgiveness, I want to lead you in a really quick prayer. Here's the facts about Jesus. Just like I just said, he lived a sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die because the wages of sin is death, says the Bible. Eternal death, ultimately. He died that death on the cross. 
and then he rose again and is alive. And he can forgive you for your sin if you accept him and ask him to apply that payment from his death on the cross to your account. So if that's you and you want to make that decision to follow Jesus today, I want to lead you in a really short prayer. It goes something like this, and you can pray this right along with me in your own heart. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have sin margin in my life and that I need forgiveness for what I've done. I believe that you are who you say you are and who the Bible says you are. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died the death I deserved to die. And I believe that you rose again. And because you're alive, I now ask you to forgive me. I also choose to make you my Lord, my leader. Help me to follow you more closely and to be a witness, an effective witness for everything that you've done for me and for the gospel. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for a new life. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.